0: Always good to celebrate the Lord's table together, and just a reminder that we are one in Christ, and uh, also for what Christ has done for us. Uh, this morning, um, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn. There are Bibles in front of you. I think it's page 945 in the Bible, and that's uh, the book of Titus or the letter to Titus. And this is our third week in looking at this chunk of the Bible, and um, I'll just catch up a very little bit. The first week we talked about what was happening, what was the context of this letter that was being written. Paul writes a letter to Titus because he's asking Titus to play a leadership role in changing an island, changing the future of an island, and the island in particular was the island of Crete, which is close to Greece in the Mediterranean Sea, Um, and he said, I want you to go there, there's lots of... Little, tiny pockets of Christian believers that have popped up over the island. Uh, Titus would know, along with everybody in that day, that Crete was not known to be a real sort of uh, upright and righteous and godly place. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Even in the Roman Empire, which was really really messed up, Crete was even more so. In fact, it had a reputation, even in the Roman Empire, for being... uh, uh, the island full of liars and, and just really people that just gave in to their passions and all sorts of different things. So first week we talked about how uh, Ty- Paul's writing to Titus about that and, and uh, got sort of the context going. The second week we talked about Titus's first big tasks to do. And they were to appoint good leaders and to deal with bad leaders. Uh, so put good leaders into place And then also do something about the bad leaders who were who were especially doing uh, teaching all sorts of false things and sort of messing up these young followers of Jesus on the island uh, as they took some of their first uh, steps with Christ. So that's the last couple weeks in a nutshell. This week we want to look at what Titus was told to teach every age group in uh, of believers in the church and the churches on the island. Okay, so. I, I was going to have fun with this, and then I talked to my wife. <laughs> see, I was going to, I wanted to separate you into, see, these, you, the instructions we're going to read are for older and younger. Older women, younger women, older men, younger men. And so I said to my wife, what do you think the average age is for, you know, being old? <laughs> and uh, anyhow, she said, if, any, if you do anything that distinguishes that some women are older, I said, anyhow, she They say married men live longer. (laughs) And I think it's only if they listen to their wives. So I am going to change what I was going to do here. Thanks to my wife, I'm going to change what I was going to do. So instead of separating you into older and younger, what I am going to do is I'm going to ask you to read the parts that are specific to men and women, okay? So, so, So think of yourself this way. If you... Let me just say this about being older and younger, because the, the passage actually differentiates that some are older and some are younger. Yeah, this, is, this should not be this difficult. This intro should not be going like this. Anyhow, I had not planned for it to be this bad. Let me say it this way You are young enough to learn from someone else, and you are old enough to teach someone else. No matter what age you are, I realize there's some in here that are in grade six. You're old enough to teach someone else. You're definitely young enough to learn from a whole bunch of people. Some of you might be uh, 86. You are old enough, for sure, to teach, but you're still young enough that you could learn from someone else too. So everyone can grab onto both of the scriptures that tie to you, okay? You can say, okay, as someone who's older than other people... I'm going to pay attention to what it says to those who are older women or older men. And as one who is younger than some people, I'm going to pay attention to the verses that also talk about uh, what younger women and younger men have to learn, okay? So that will get me out of a pickle, hopefully. All right. So we're got, what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to look at a few verses here, and I'm going to ask... Uh, first, we're going to, we're going to start ladies first. We're going, to get, uh, the, we're going to look at the instructions to older women, and I'm going to ask all the women and girls in here to read this, this uh, verse together, okay? So it's Titus chapter 2 and verse 3, and we'll get it up on the screen here so we can all read it in unison. And this is the instructions to older women, okay? Ladies, I'll get you started. Likewise, teach... Okay, it's just one verse, but it's got lots packed into it. I'm not going to expound on it right now. Good job. Good job. Now, we're going to switch gears, and we're going to, we're going to read the verse. The next verse that follows it, or the next two verses, that actually are written to what those older women are to teach to the younger women. So Titus 2, 4, and 5. Okay, so again, ladies, let's read it. Okay, good job. Guys, think the girls did a great job? I think they did a phenomenal job. Um, and you better be impressed because it's your turn. Okay? So now we're, we're going uh, to read what uh, was written towards the older men, okay? Or what Titus was to teach the older men. Okay? So Titus two. 2. So guys, boys, let's read this together, okay? Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect. Self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Okay, good job, guys. And now we're going to say, what were the older men supposed to teach the younger men? Now, before this one, just take a deep breath, okay? Take a deep breath, because this is, this is a big one. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Titus 2.6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. I heard that, (laughs) a young woman said, that's it? That's it? Our list was like six things and the guys have one thing? Now, if you're discouraged as a young woman right now, don't be discouraged. This will come in in handy later on when you have an argument with a guy in your life because you can tell him, you only had one job, (laughs) right? Be self-controlled. Now, I, I look at that and I think, well, Obviously, they're giving a lot of credence to women's ability to multitask since they have so many tasks. But, guys, we have one job. One job. Amazing. Young men, we have one job. What's the hyphenated word that shows up all over all of those verses? Self-controlled. Self-controlled. And being self-controlled not only shows up in... Almost all of them, it doesn't actually, I think in the one to the older women, it doesn't actually say the word self-control, but everything implied in there is self-control. So whether you read the word self-control, or you read all the other instructions, they're all saying basically the same thing. Be self-controlled. Now, this was in a culture, the Cretan culture, which was not self-controlled. In fact, they gave in to their own desires and, and lusts and, and passions willy-nilly. They just went for it. And it wasn't always pretty what happened because of that. So he's saying, in this culture, which is just given to their passions and they do whatever they think. He says, I, I want you to teach these new people, these new Cretans, these new people from the island of Crete who, are, who are, are, are following Jesus to be self-controlled. Now, I want to show you a quick video, okay? And uh, this is a video about self-control, and you may have seen it before. I can't get enough of it. Every time I watch it, I'm enthralled. But uh, hopefully this will work for you. So let's, let's just roll that, that video. do something and then I'll come back. You need Mm -hmm. (laughs) him. All right. So tell me, which kid did you identify with? How many of you are like, I am the little redhead? How many of you just say, that's me, that's me, that was my five-year-old or four-year-old self? Now, this is a famous experiment, and you can see very, like on YouTube, you can see a whole bunch of different variations of it done by lots of different people. But the originators of the marshmallow test was a professor called Professor Walter Michelle. And Professor Walter, he he has some videos, too, on YouTube where he says, um, just in case you missed the point. (laughs) So here's the thing. If you watch that, you probably identify, you say, oh, yeah, I'm the kid who just eats the marshmallow. You know, that red-headed girl who's like, what, we're doing a test? Oh, really? You know? I, some of you say, well, that's just me. I just Yeah, I just give in, or that's how I was when I was five. Um, Professor Walter, he actually comes and does some videos, and he says, you know what, even if at five... Because there's a whole bunch of stuff extrapolated from this. A lot of people say, well, the ones who learn to deny instant gratification in their lives are the ones who go on to do better in school and do better in life, and they're richer and they're happier and all these different things. That's the normal thing we talk about when we talk about the marshmallow test. But uh, Professor Walter, he comes back and he says, actually, what you need to learn uh, from this is that self-control you're not actually dictated to the rest of your life. If at five you eat the marshmallow, that doesn't mean the rest of your life you're going to have a wrecked life or you won't be able to have self-control. Self-control can be learned. That's the point he makes in many of his videos. Self-control can be learned, and then he goes about trying to help people learn self-control. And you know what? The professor and the passage of scriptures that we just read agree wholeheartedly self control is not something that some people have they were born with it and some people don't they don't have it's something every one of us can learn and that's why paul writes to titus he says teach them older younger right across the age spectrum teach them to be self controlled teach them To be self-controlled, and one of the teaching uh, main teaching things he says is your example, and that comes after the writings about the about the younger men. But teach them to be self-controlled because you can learn self-control. Now, what is self-control? Tim Keller's got a good definition. I like self-control is the ability to recognize and choose the important thing over the urgent thing because your desire is properly ordered. So the urgent thing is marshmallow right now. The important thing is something better down the road. Now, very simple, you know, two marshmallows is not actually better for you. But the idea is, that it's, is true that if you can delay gratification, you can o- often have something better down the road. And it's that future anticipation uh, that helps you to have, um, to have your desires properly ordered in life. So, with self-control, there's a, there's a couple things here. The first, there's the idea of controlling oneself. It, it presumes that, at, at least a couple things, that there's something within ourselves that needs to be controlled. Self-control assumes that there's something within ourselves that needs to be controlled. Okay? And then the second thing it assumes is that there's a possibility that we can draw on some source of power to actually control it. And uh, as for Christians... We would say that the thing that within us that needs to be controlled is our selfish, sinful desires, right? And that those things, even if you become a follower of Jesus, those things don't aren't instantly eradicated, right? Even though uh, God has made you into a new person, there still is a residual effect of all these years of, of living uh, for self, right? And there there still is a sinful nature inside of us that's there's a. Uh, Paul described it in other passages, there's a war inside myself. What I want to do, I don't do. Oh, who's gonna rescue me from this, this body of death, he says. And then he turns his focus towards Jesus, which is, you'll find as we go further, is the key. So there's a war within, within ourselves. So what what let me give you a few things that self-control means. Uh, first thing is self-control means living within boundaries. Living within boundaries. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight says it this way: "Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control." So, self-control means living within boundaries. Now, in in the old um, the days of when that was written, in the book of Proverbs, the Old Testament days, a city that didn't have walls was a mess. Right? Walls meant that uh, you couldn't be raided. Like just willy-nilly by any raiding party that came by. It also meant that you could probably have a decent economy within your walls because there was a safety and security. People would come to that city and trade because it had walls. The other one that had broken down walls, they wouldn't go trade there. They weren't safe. And so economy would flourish. Uh, all sorts of things would, would flourish when a city had proper boundaries, when it actually had walls. And it says that a man who doesn't or a person who doesn't have self-control is like a city without walls. All sorts of brokenness shows up. All sorts of systems break down. All sorts of uh, things happen that aren't good. And uh, so we need, we need boundaries. Boundaries are a protection in our life. And self-control means living within boundaries. Um, the second thing self-control means, it, it means thinking before acting. Thinking before acting. Um, do you ever find yourself acting and then you wake out sort of out of it or you come out of it and you go, whoa, what? how did this happen? Right? I think we all had that experience. If you have a subscription to Netflix, you've had that experience, right? You wake up and you're like, what time is it? And then it's like, what day is it? Right? It's like, how could this possibly, you know, we didn't have that. Back then we had to wait every week, you know, for the show to come on. We couldn't binge watch Five seasons in one weekend. We couldn't do that before. Now you can do that. And, you, and literally, people do come out of stupors from Netflix or from endless YouTube watching or from video games, and they're like, how long has it been since I went to the washroom? You know, like, there's just these things that we've never encountered before where it's just like, I'm acting without thinking, right? The other day, I, was, I, I clicked on a funny video on Netflix. It happened to be connected to a whole series of funny videos, so, I watched the funny video, and then there's a little timer. It doesn't, it doesn't last long, and it basically is going to hit another video up for you. So it's going to queue up, and you have this sort of this little decision window. Do I stop it from queuing up? No, it looks funny too. I can watch that. <laughs> and then another one, and another one, and another one, and suddenly hours are gone, and you're like, what happened? I was acting without or not acting, but I wasn't thinking. I didn't mean to spend my whole evening, suddenly it's gone. So self-control means thinking before we act, noticing that we have a craving, whether it's for funny videos on, on YouTube, or it's for watching Netflix, or it's for all sorts of other things uh, that that uh, we lack self-control in, right? So you'll find this in Christian's teaching on this, and and just Regular teaching that you find in the world, basically, examine your cravings. Maybe you should identify the fact that you do have cravings, right? And cravings can be a lot of things. Cravings, we often think of things drug-related, right? So like um, nicotine, you know, you have a craving to have a a, a smoke, right? That craving, so examine your cravings. Some people are, like, they go in for treatment, and people say, I want you to go home, and I want you to write down every time you have a craving, which is a lot of writing, right? Right? And they go home and, I, well, I don't really have cravings. I just, like, let's take nicotine. I just smoke a lot. It's like, no, no, write down every time you have a craving. It's like, okay. And then they examine that, and they, they start becoming mindful of it, and they go, oh, oh, really? It's, I, I, I have cravings at this time, and, and this, and then examine what's happening in the situation. One, one of the acrostics that really helps me is the acrostic HALT, which, which basically means stop, but H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, Lonely, tired, right? In what condition are you in when you give in to your cravings, when you act without thinking? What is that? Examine it. Look at it. Step back from your life and say, whoa, why am I in this endless pattern, right? So, oh, it's, it's when I'm, I'm hungry, it's when I'm angry, or when I'm lonely, when I'm tired. It could be other conditions too. That one really helps me, right? So when I'm tired, when I'm tired, that's probably not the time for me to, Go on YouTube, right? When I'm lonely, that's probably not the time to browse Netflix, right? There's certain things, right? When I'm hungry, that's not the time to go shopping. (laughs) I come home with way too many uh, junk food items that look really good in the store, but after you've had a couple bags of Doritos, it's just not working for you anymore. So self-control means thinking before acting, so realize why you're partic- particularly susceptible to a certain cra- craving, and be aware. Okay, self So you make decisions ahead of time, right? So a lot of times people do management things, like you know, I won't, I don't, you know, I won't go down certain aisles of the grocery store. I have a set pattern. <sharp inhale> Looks like that. That's exactly it, actually. Um, I have that pattern. I always follow it. It keeps me out of the cookie aisle. Okay, it works. Okay. Some people say I don't go to certain places. I don't at certain times. I'm not. You know, I've got stuff on my internet browser, you know, all these different things that, we, that help us, okay? But thinking before acting, making a game plan before we go. Self-control, here's another thing with self-control. It is not emotional flatness or indifference. Now, this is starting to where, uh, this is, I would say, where some of the teaching that you have in society on self-control and Christian teaching on self-control actually diverge a little bit, okay? So I hope... That, you know, when you come to church, you're not just hearing something you could have heard on Dr. Phil. I hope you're hearing something that really reflects what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so that we are going there. uh, Let me show you that the path is diverging here. So some of the teaching on self-control that's in the culture really focuses on muting our desires. Right? Becoming stoic people of moderation who are not driven by strong passions or emotions. Okay? I'm just going to be a man of moderation. And I'm not going to be driven by my emotions or my passions. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we read in scriptures. To become these people who are sort of, sort of numb emotionally, who aren't in, you know, engaged with those emotions. You know. In fact, the Bible talks about having very passionate emotions, but having those very passionate emotions directed the right way. So if you say today, I'm just a passionate person. I could never be self-controlled. This talk is not going to help me in any way because I'm just passionate. I'm just always fired by my emotions. I would say there is huge hope for you because God commands people to be passionate. But there's a danger, and that is not just passion for passion's sake, passion for the sake of God. Okay? Let me just... um Let me just read this here. This is not... Stoic people of moderation who are not driven by strong passions or emotions is not the approach the followers of Christ are to take. Scripture is about passion. It commands passion. Our relationship to God in Christ should be characterized by emotional intensity. Our response to our own sin should be hatred and tears. Our love for others should be such that we are moved by both their pleasure and their pain. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We are not stoic, unemotional You know, the church is not supposed to be a whole bunch of cookie-cutter versions of Spock. We're meant to be people of passion, but that passion has to be directed in the right place. So scriptures do not disprove a passion, they command it. And the problem is not that we're too passionate to be self-controlled, it's that we are sometimes passionate about the wrong things. Jesus replied when they were asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind it doesn't sound like stoic reserve unemotionalism it sounds like you're brimming with passion but your your passion is brimming for God and that becomes your your focus finally self-control is not self-dependence um, I I just want to read Edward Welch. Uh, He, I read a little bit of his stuff in preparing for this, and I thought this one paragraph really stood out to me. Um, If we try to drive out one master, other masters will run in to take its place. So let me just stop. I'll come back to him in a bit. So I talked to you about there's um you got cities, broken down walls, there's no boundaries. That's not good, right? The other thing about cities and I'm just going to quote it or paraphrase it because I, don't, I never quote it exactly right. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are saved. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. So think about a city. So you've got walls, but often in the walls or sometimes separate from the walls, there is a tower. Sometimes it's in the walls, it's got double thick walls on it. It's the strongest place. It's an incredible strong place. You run Safety, when you feel unsafe, you don't feel secure, you run into that tower, you're good. Here's the thing. Lots of people can make lots of things their tower. And sometimes those things, in fact often those things, aren't a good tower, right? So let's say, where you feel hungry, angry, lonely, tired is after work, right? Work is stressful, you didn't, eat, you didn't have time to eat, uh, you, you feel bad about you know, some of the feedback you got at work, and you're exhausted. Right? All, the, all the conditions are, are there. right? And you think, wow, what am I going to turn to? What could be my tower in this moment? And that's where our cravings come into place. That's where we binge watch Netflix. That's where we, uh, we drink too much alcohol. That's where uh, all, we're, we're, we're driven to all sorts of different temptations in that moment. Those cravings emerge and we give in to them. And at first, they bring... A semblance of pleasure. They bring pleasure. The Bible even tells us there's pleasure in sin for a season. Right? So it actually sort of works. And so we think, wow, if I do more of this thing that seems to work, it'll work more. The only problem is all those things eventually become a tower that imprisons us. So the person who starts out with, hey, yeah, just having a drink after work to take the edge off, and wow, two would probably take more of the edge off, and eventually I need a six-pack to sit down after work and hey, wait a second, this is getting out of control. In fact, I'm not self-controlled. I'm not in control anymore. There's an addiction forming that actually is controlling me. Back to our verse. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. You want to make the tower in your life, you want to make the place of security and, and, and safety, you want to make it the right thing. And you want, as I'm saying, all over the place, you want to make it the Lord. Back to Edward. Welch, he says, if we try to drive out one master, okay? So something's become a tower in your life, but it's not a tower of strength and and protection. It becomes a tower of imprisonment in your life, okay? If we try to drive that out, other masters will rush in to take its place. This is what he says, exercise instead of food. A slavish devotion to work or workaholism instead of adultery. They seem like upgrades, right? But this is what he says. And this is something I don't know a lot about, but I'll take his word for it. The Alcoholics Anonymous observation of the dry drunk is an illustration of people who have reformed themselves in the sense that they are sober, but the demons that drove them to drink continue to be their masters. The only master that is not harsh and enslaving is Christ himself. In fact, even though we are his servants, the actual experience of this service is so joyful and blessed that it's called liberation. You get that? You made something your tower and now it's imprisoned you and now you say, okay, I'm going to find something better. And the culture will say, yeah, yeah, turn away from your food addiction to working out. Turn away from your, uh, your, you know, uh, dalliances online or your adultery and 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 just put in an 80-hour work week but you're just trading one imprisonment for another and Edward Welsh says the only master that is not harsh and enslaving is Christ himself so how do we learn self-control how do we learn self-control Titus 2 11 to 15 I'll just read it to you. It says, For the grace of God, this is after these instructions to the different ages, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the, in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us From all wickedness and to purify us for himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Wow, there's an interesting concept here. The grace of God teaches us to say no. And saying no is pretty much the essence of self control, isn't it? Right? Say no to the marshmallow, say no to the cravings, um, say no in advance, say no in the moment, whatever. That's pretty much the essence of self-control is to be able to say no uh, to the wrong thing and yes to the right thing. First, let's, let's just talk real quickly about how ungodliness and worldly passions affect us, okay? Um, Ephesians 4.19 says, uh, this is about, un, you know, basically these things, ungodliness and worldly passions. They, these are people who've given themselves over, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And I think this is the essence, that continual lust for more, that continual desire, that craving for more, is the, is the essence of addiction. It's the essence of, of greed. Greed isn't just a money thing. It can be for many things, right? It's the essence of our struggle that we face, right? And what greed says, what greed or, or that desire for one more uh, it says about, it's, it's, it's really sending a message, right? We're really sending a message. We're saying, you know what? I think this will satisfy me. I think this will satisfy me. That's why, that's why you know, I, for me, that YouTube video is great. But I want one more. And I want one more. And I want one more, right? With each indulgence, we paradoxically feel less and less satisfied, While we're persuaded that the object of our desire is the only thing that fills us. It's sort of a cycle of madness, really, right? And I think that Satan, we talk about, in the Bible talks about Satan or the, you know, dark evil forces, spiritual forces that array themselves against the follower of Jesus. Satan knows that sin, and he has well-tested strategies to persuade us that sin is not really that bad and God is really not that good. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. What was the big conversation with Eve? Basically, like, the whole temptation was, hey, look at that fruit. It looks really good to eat, doesn't it? Maybe the fruit is better than you thought it was. And now God. Did God really say you shouldn't eat it? It was sort of like, here's the... So you have God and you have fruit. Who would ever choose fruit over God? Well, the temptation is for fruit to seem better... And for God to seem not so much so. And then the choice is made. And we all experience that in our lives. The greed for one more is in our lives is saying that God is not enough. Self-control, on the other hand, says that he is. And so we counteract the continual lust for more with relationship with Christ. So how does the grace of God teach us to say no? Well, first... We have to reckon with the fact that we have already received grace. Read that verse again. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Another way of saying the grace of God has appeared is Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up. That's the game changer when it comes to self-control for the Christian. Jesus showed up and offered us grace. And so we've received grace already through the cross, and we'll experience that grace even more fully when we're united with Christ. So here's, here's these two concepts. We've already received a, a, like a truckload of grace. That's an understatement. We've received so much grace through what Jesus did on the cross. Right? We didn't deserve that. Grace is, it, I learned this when I was a kid, God's riches at Christ's expense. Another acrostic. They helped me. Um, We receive from God what we totally didn't deserve, but what we totally need. It's absolutely what we need. We need grace in our lives. Even when you look at secular treatments for self-control issues, they are trying to replicate grace. I was watching a video. I think it was a TED talk or something like that. And they're saying, "Okay, you're not winning this battle over your temptation. You're not winning. You're not winning in the self-control area." Do a lot of self-talk. Talk Talk to yourself and be really nice to yourself when you talk to yourself. It was really, as I was watching this video, I thought, it's fascinating. They are saying, be gracious to yourself. This isn't bad stuff. I'm not saying it's bad stuff. I'm just saying that as a Christian watching that, I said, "Oh, I don't have to do that same level of self-talk Someone's already spoken grace over my life permanently and unalterably. See, a lot of the things, a lot of the techniques we have in society is that, hey, you're alone. You're on your own in this. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do it on your own. Succeed on your own. And here's the technique that you're going to use you're going to convince yourself through self talk that you're all right, you know, you're good. Give yourself a break. Whereas the Christian way is look outside of yourself. Not inside of yourself. Look outside of yourself to God himself. And look at what he says about your life. Look how he says, you're, you're my beloved. You're, you're precious to me. You're accepted because of what Christ did on the cross. You're my child. You're not alone. You're my child because of what Jesus did. Right? So we come at it very differently. We don't look inside of ourselves and go, man, I'm a worthless person. But I'm going to tell myself I'm not. Man, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a train wreck. But I'm going to say I'm not. Instead, we, we actually, I, I can own the fact that I'm broken. I can own it all the way down to the depths of how broken I am. As much as I know about my brokenness, I can own every bit of it. And I can still receive grace. Because... Jesus offers that to every single one of us. So we've received grace all ready. When grace appeared, when Jesus came through the cross, we've received grace. And then, well, let me just say that. This, this passage changes everything. It takes a simple command. Say no. Just say no. Wasn't that a drug strategy that didn't really work? Just say no. It takes that and it sandwiches it between two big Pieces of bread of grace, right? It says, Take, it, 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 the, it takes a simple command saying no and it surrounds it with Jesus Christ. See, Scripture never expects us to hear God's commands to us in isolation from the serious contemplation of God's work for us in Christ. The foundation on how a Christian lives is based upon something deeper than even the commands found in Scripture. Did you know that? Let me me give you an example. Why shouldn't we lie? Why shouldn't we lie? The Cretans were compulsive liars. That was what they were known as, even in the Roman Empire. They were the the biggest, fattest liars of all the big, fat liars. They're way up there. Why shouldn't we lie? Well, it's an easy answer for a Christian to say, well, we hearken back to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie. That's pretty straightforward. There's a command, solid, everybody... Honors it, you know, the Judeo-Christian worldview holds this up. We should not lie. We're commanded not to lie. Why don't we lie? We're commanded not to lie. There is that is a great reason. That's a great answer. It's a good answer. It's valid in every way, but there's a deeper answer. And the deeper answer is: we don't lie because of the character of the one we worship. He, that's what Titus chapter 1, he is the God who cannot lie who cannot lie. That's his character. That's who he is. So everything ethically and morally that we would say, hey, we're commanded not to do this, it finds its roots in who God is. In who God is. So what what, about, take another one. Adultery. Why shouldn't you cheat on your spouse? Say, well, it's in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's an easy one, right? It's there. So Christians particularly in a culture would be adverse to this or would recognize that that's not right, right? Because we got a command. But it goes much deeper than that. Have you ever read the book of Hosea? Hosea is a prophet God calls. And he says, Hosea, your job is you're going to reveal to the world what my character is like in the area of faithfulness. You're going to actually take a woman as a wife who is unlikely to be faithful to you. If you ever think, man, I'd love to be a prophet of God. No, don't pray that prayer. If God brings that into your life, respond. But seriously, this is not a fun journey. This is what Hosea did. He married this woman who had a bad track record, and sure enough, she cheated on him and left him. And God comes to Hosea and he says, now you're going to demonstrate what I'm like. You're going to demonstrate to the watching community and to those who read my scriptures for, uh, for generations what I'm like. Go and find her and bring her home and be faithful to her. Can you imagine? If that was me, I'd be like, no, I have every right not to. She wasn't faithful. This is madness. No, no, Hosea, you're going to show the world my character. So Hosea goes and he takes her and he brings her home. And sure enough, she's unfaithful again. Well, you think that would be, okay, this prophet thing, I did it, I'm done. No, no. I want you to show the world who I am, what my character's like. I want you to, them to see how faithful I am, even to those who are unfaithful. Go and bring her home again and be faithful to her. And so he does. Crazy. Crazy. But every command is backstopped by God's character. We go back to, um, to who he is and what he does, because that's the character of the one we worship. Last week, I got some ribbing from some of the staff because they said, the only line I remember from your sermon is, don't seduce like D- Zeus. That's what they said. Anyhow, but you know, I, did, I do like that line, don't seduce like Zeus. That was who they worshiped on the island of Crete, and he was a seducer, and that showed up in their morals. That showed up in how they lived. And, and I... My pushback on not seducing like Zeus is double down on Jesus, double down on the one who is faithful, double down on the one who cannot lie, double down in those ways, right? So we're commanded to love our neighbors, we're commanded to love our enemies, we're commanded to forgive, commanded to be patient, to be kind, we're commanded to be compassionate, we're commanded to extend grace to others, but not just because those are commands, but because those are the character of the one that we worship. Now, the other, side, the other piece of bread. So you've got this, we've received grace from Christ. He's already given us. But there's a grace yet to come. And that this coupling of self-control with the coming of Jesus, right? Let me read 1 Peter 1.13. It also says it very well. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. When Scripture calls us to be vigilant in our battle with sin, it often directs our attention to the future and coming hope of Jesus coming again. So, a few things that help us about that, right? First is, someday our battle with sin will be over. A battle with sin is hard. If you just say, oh, I'm just going to let go and let God. No, no. It's hard. It is a fight. There's no bones about it. That's what it is. Right? Right? It's a challenge and there's a good thing that Jesus is coming again because that means there's a deadline there's an end to the fight so I can do something now in between Christ's first coming and his second coming to honor him and to show that he's my Lord and that is I can fight sin but as I get fatigued in that fight I have to recognize that this is not forever Jesus is coming again a second benefit to meditating on the future uh, relates that Eternity exposes the things that are really important. Again, do you want the marshmallow of now or do you want the much better reward of later? Again, eternity helps us to recognize that, that there will be greater things to come that we should be living for. And also, the third benefit of meditating on the grace to come or, God, or Jesus' second coming is it reveals our true destiny. And this can be pretty powerful. Right? We could just say, hey, I'm just human. I can't help it. But we are created to be like Jesus in every way that a creature can be like Jesus. That means we're becoming people who are controlled solely by the Spirit of the living God and not by our private passions. And true humanness is, be able, is, is an ability to say no to ungodly passion even when it hurts. If you've put your faith in Christ, your destiny is to be absolutely sinless. That's not going to happen on this earth but now on this earth is the time to start acting like the person you soon will be. This life is a breath. It will be over. Start practicing for the big game. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. When you are under the attack of your own cravings. When you realize that you're in that danger zone, you got to run to the right tower. you got to run to the right tower. See, as Jesus is known and exalted in your life, you'll notice that self-control becomes more obvious and you'll notice progress in your life in the area of self-control. Not perfection. I don't know that any of us will ever achieve perfection, but we'll experience progress. But in order to do that, in order to do that, we must cultivate an affection for Jesus. If you want progress in this area, you have to cultivate an affection for Jesus. I I think it was Jonathan Edwards. I'm not totally sure, but I think he coined this phrase. You need the expulsive, that means to expel, the expulsive power of a new affection. So you have an old passion, that you realize you want to get rid of, you have an old craving that you don't want to linger around or control you anymore, you need the power of a brand new affection. And the only one that is truly safe enough to give yourself to is an affection for Jesus Christ. So instead of food or work or shopping or sex or gossip or alcohol or exercise or tobacco, Jesus must be the one we run to when we're hungry and angry and lonely and tired. None of those other things make a good tower to run to. He must be the tower we run to. Invite the band back and I'll tell you one last story. So it was June this year. And I'm usually, that's probably one of the tiredest times of the year for me, June. It's sort of like, there's a good, you know, I think all of us, well, not all of us, but lots of us are tired in June. Students don't want to go to school. Uh, parents think school is one month too long or one month too short, depending on whether you want your kids back again. Uh, but, you know, that's a tired time of the year. And I'm often spent in June, and I, I was this year. I was sort of spent. And um, I was away on vacation. I happened to be Regina, and I went to the Regina Apostolic Church for church on the Sunday morning. And uh, I do this here at our church, but when I'm at other churches, I do it even more. You know when there's prayer teams up at the front? That is like a huge, incredible blessing and a resource to your life. And to my life, too. Uh, so I've, often, I've asked lots of people here in this church, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? I need prayer. Would you pray? Would you help me? Let's talk. Let's pray. I do that a lot. when I was at that service in the Regina Apostolic Church, I was just like, man, I feel dry spiritually. I feel like given out, haven't sort of replenished like I should. And... Uh, So I looked up at the front, and they had different prayer teams at the front of their church, which was really cool, sort of like we do it, and um, a few of them I knew because I have a relationship with some of the people in that church, and I thought, I don't want to go to someone I know. I just, I want to, and I saw this couple up there, uh, and I went up and I I joined them, and uh, so I said, well, this is where I'm at, sort of dry spiritually. They didn't know me. That was great. I'm just sort of dry spiritually. I just feel like, um, you know, I'm not in a good place, you know, In some ways, you know, maybe I wasn't hungry or angry, but I might have been lonely, tired. I don't know. I might have had some of those things going on in my life. So I said, this is where I'm at. This was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. This couple didn't say, oh, this is Pastor Steve. They just said, here's a guy who says he wants to follow Jesus, and he's struggling to follow Jesus, and he needs help. And so is this man and this woman. They both gave me advice, but it was the woman that really got my attention. She just said, so two of the things I'll sh- share with you she said. She said, I-, I have to tell you they were a black couple because of how she said it. <laughs> Boy. I thought, I think I'm older than you, but that's fine. Boy, you just need to read the Bible like a child. I thought, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. Do you worship? I said, yeah, yeah. Do you worship on your own? Yeah, sometimes. Do you worship in your car? Well, sometimes. You should worship in your car. I was like, yeah, I should worship in my car. (laughs) Read the Bible like a child and worship in your car. How come this sounds so profound? How come this sounds so life-giving? How come this sounds like the wisest thing ever? You know what? If anyone ever gives you a pointer finger that just points to Jesus and says, that's what you need, it's wisdom. I was like, yeah, I, you know what? I think I just got my prescription for the summer. I gonna read the Bible like a child. I'm going to worship in my car. <laughs> Why? Why? Because when hungry, angry, lonely, and tired shows up, I don't want to turn to something else I've been cultivating an affection for. I want to have cultivated an affection for my Lord Jesus Christ, and so that I run into that tower and not the other one. And you know what? It works, it's not instantaneous. You say, I want some of these addictions, I want these things broken right now. I'm 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 not promising you something like that, that they'll be broken in the moment. Even though God has done that for some people, miraculous ways, he can do that. But generally what I've seen is he gives you enough grace, he gave you tons on the cross, he'll give you tons when he comes again, and then he gives you tons through every day. You can burn it like jet fuel. To say no to worldly passions and to say yes to Jesus. And when you're in that moment, Run into the right tower. Cultivate that affection and you will discover in greater and greater measure just how much He is the answer to your cravings. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, I thank you for I thank you for techniques, I thank you for game plans, I thank you for all the different ways in, that we can learn uh, about ourselves and about how we're wired and, in this area. But I thank you most of all for you, that you give us yourself, that you don't withhold from us your kingly leadership in our lives. It was your pleasure to give us the kingdom. That means you didn't say, I'm, I'm resisting giving you my leadership. I'm withholding it. You're on your own. You said, I'm jumping in the game with you. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. Run to me. When we, look, when we lift our eyes up to the hills and we say, where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord of heaven and earth. It comes from you. And so, Lord, even though we can be wise and we can have strategies and we can have techniques and all those things, they're not wrong. Ultimately, you want to fill our cravings with yourself. You've put a void in us for you that can only be filled by you. And so we run to you. We run to you. We come to you. We don't want to exchange an old master for a new, uh, also unfulfilling master. We want to exchange all of that for you. So Lord, for each one on the path that they're in and the cravings they're in, I know you have grace and mercy. I know you are compassionate. I know you are slow to anger and you are abounding in love. And so Lord, I pray that each one of us will get a greater and greater understanding of your character towards us, your love towards us, your compassion towards us. Show us what righteousness is and then show us that we can only be righteous with you. Lord, I pray for hope to rise in each heart here this morning. For some who said, I can never be free. I can never have self-control. I pray that that lie would be confronted by your spirit, by the truth of your word, that you are calling us all to self-control. And it's not a, a lonely walk without on our own that we're just trying to cheer ourselves up. You are going with us the whole way. And so you stand with us, your shadow falls over us, you're backing us up. As we say yes to you, you give us the power. So Lord, we embrace the path of self-control that you have for us, and we say yes to you. In your name, amen.